0: Good morning, this is Dee Kelly, and I am the pastor at San Diego First Church of the Nazarene, which is located in the Point Loma area of San Diego. We would certainly love to have you join us in person if you're ever comfortable doing that. We meet at 1030 for church, 9 o'clock is the hour for Sunday school classes, and we have midweek programming throughout the week. But this morning, or whatever time of day it might be for you, we are glad that you've chosen to join us online. We are in a series in 1 Corinthians looking at the ways in which this might help us to understand the nature of the church and the way in which the church should conduct itself. And the passage for this particular morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I would love to read that now for us. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong, or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I grew up, I put childish things behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love those who attend our church would likely know from my many references to it that i enjoy hiking and i particularly enjoy hiking slot canyons there are some beautiful slot canyons up in death valley in arizona and utah there are actually some nearby here there's one up in solano beach and a small one in la jolla on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Slot canyons are wonderful places where erosion has caused um, a break in the rock so that as you walk through the pathway, the sides of the sandstone or some other type of rock are going up on either side of you, sometimes six, seven feet tall, sometimes 50 to 80 feet tall, depends on the Slot Canyon. The walls can be very close together, they can be far apart, but they are beautiful formations and when the sun shines in a particular way, there can be beautiful shadows and uh, picturesque walks that can be very breathtaking. Because they are part of the flow of water, you typically walk a slot canyon either up in the direction from where the water comes or down to where the water goes. It's difficult to walk slot canyons with water in them. Many of them are dry, but the ones in Zion National Park have water in them and provide an extra interesting notion of uh, travel and hiking. Um, I have, on occasions, been on a slot canyon where I was coming down after having gone far up as I could, going faster than I probably should, allowing my body to get ahead of my feet, and I have done what is sometimes referred to as a faceplant. It's not fun, it's a bit embarrassing, it can hurt, and my feet, when they get tripped up by rocks that I wasn't paying close enough attention to cause me to lunge forward and fall flat on my face. That term flight faceplant is somewhat of a colloquial phrase. It's not something that many people are familiar with. Um, who have not been part of this generation or maybe the previous generation. It's a phrase that we've coined to just identify a number of things in our culture, whether it be falling on a pathway or sometimes used metaphorically when something doesn't go over well in a conversation or something was a disaster. Sometimes that's referred to as a face plant. It is when we fall down. Now I say that because when we look at Paul's writings to the church at Corinth, Paul uses some colloquialisms. Um, He uses some things that are familiar to them at that time that may not be familiar to us. And when we read the passage, we might find ourselves um, picking up a meaning that makes sense to us now, but missing another layer of meaning that the original audience might have picked up on. For example, in verse 1, 7, and 12 of this passage, we find words and language that reference uh, brass or metal. For example, in verse 1, it talks about, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing more than a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is likely a reference to what was a very prominent vocation in and trade in Corinth, and that is that there were wonderful brass makers. They would form bowls and tools and various things that could be used by households and in um, other types of businesses. And if they were anything like they are today, it would be in the inner city where These brass formers and makers, craftsmen, would all congregate and throughout the day they would form pieces of metal to whatever they were unique um, in selling. Different craftsmen would specialize in different aspects of brass making. And I am told that if you enter into a marketplace in a city that has this the workers all gathered in their own little areas where they sell their goods are frantically banging the brass with hammers on other type of metals and the la- the noise is deafening. Deafening, not pleasant. Um, I am told that if you're trying to communicate with one of the vendors, you have to get within inches of their ear and shout for them to hear because the noise is so loud and so incessant. That kind of image is what Paul is describing when he says, without love, I'm just a clanging cymbal. It is something that the Corinthians would certainly understand. In verses 7 and in verse 12, there are also references to things that would be made by brass makers. In verse 12, it's a mirror where we see partially, like through a glass darkly, is how some translators print it. Um, But then there will come a time where we see face to face. It is, again, an image that would be understood by the culture of that time, and we can make sense of it, but maybe don't fully appreciate the potency of that local cultural norm. Another thing that Paul uses throughout this book, and we find it again here in this place, is references to mountains, mountain climbing, mountain pathways. Talks about if I could say to this mountain, um, move and it moves, it's an expression of faith. Well, mountains in that time were very familiar. The mountains near Corinth and the pathways from other places carried with it some danger, and moving some portion of the mountain to create a pathway was a laborious task. And if faith could just make it happen, that person would be highly valued, but if they did it without love, it was worthless. Similarly, we come to later on in the passage uh, where it is described as love never fails. Well, the word used there could literally be translated, love never falls. The mountain paths were very dangerous and falling was a fear or a constant concern on certain pathways because of the steep mountain on one side and the fall or precipice that dropped off on the other side. And so the notion of falling became something that was very relevant to the people of that time. And so the literal translation of that is love never falls. Makes more sense to us today to say love never fails. But the imagery is written for the people of the time and hopefully we will begin to appreciate the unique characteristics of this passage. Well, not only is brass a unique thing, mountains a unique thing, the word love itself is. <clears throat> the word for love, there are many in Greek. One of them refers to erotic or romantic love. Another refers to the family ties that we have. The particular word that's used throughout this passage was at least some linguists uh, assert <clears throat> was not a very common term. It's almost as if Paul took it And defined it. And then it became the banner word for the Christian Church. It is a word that talks about how we treat one another. And so Paul spends this chapter expanding on a word that he's wanting to define who we are. Lastly, I want to mention the structure of Paul's writings. Last week, if you were with us, I talked about the um, circle or ring by which Paul makes some of his arguments, where he moves up in an argument, there is a culmination, and then uses the same subjects or steps down from that crescendo moment. For me, it's a little bit easier to think of it as kind of a pyramid, where it's what is at the top can cast shadows in every direction the steps up to the top, and then the steps down from the top. And so we talked about how this is part of a large sermon that goes from chapter 11 through chapter 14, beginning with, uh, in chapter 11, men and women in worship, speaking specifically about clothing, moving on to disorder in worship, speaking about the Lord's Supper, then concerns over the spiritual gifts, and a discussion about us being one body. The crescendo is chapter 13 when it speaks about love, but then it steps down in the same order, reverse order, as was used to get to that crescendo, with a discussion about the concerns for spiritual gifts and that gifts need to benefit the body. Disorder in worship comes back to that topic, but this time in terms of the orderly use of speakers in worship. And then once again talking about men and women in worship and this time the chatter that was going on that was disruptive. Well, this middle portion, this portion about love has its own pyramid within it. It is like a piece within a piece. And with love, there are an equal number of steps. It begins in talking about the way, the journey. The journey is important. The destination is important, but the journey, the way we get to the destination, is crucial and critical. And so Paul, at the end of chapter 11, says in verse 31, Let me show you the more excellent way. He concludes in chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, So zealously pursue the way of love. So he begins and ends In a similar fashion. The next level on that pyramid, after he introduces the way, is to talk about spiritual gifts and love. And so he says, regarding spiritual gifts, if I can speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and it can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith and can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions away to help feed the poor, and if I use my body up for good things but I have not love, I have gained nothing. This is a discussion of the spiritual gifts and the way in which they play into love. The same thing happens toward the end of this beautiful hymn, when Paul talks about the same kind of spiritual gifts, and challenges us again to live into the love that makes them valuable. After speaking about spiritual gifts, he begins to talk about the positive aspects of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. But then there is a shift, and he talks about the negative aspects of love. He speaks about love from a negative viewpoint. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not easily anger. Love doesn't keep account of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in evil. These things are looking at the negative side of things. And yet, this is the crescendo of this kind of stair step pyramid. This is the centerpiece, looking at love from kind of a negative perspective, what it's not. Why would this be the case? Why would Paul make the negative side of things or, or language? that speaks about what love is not as the peak of this, the reason is is that he's writing to the Corinthians church and he's talking about them in a not-so-subtle way. He is saying, you envy, you boast, you're proud, you're rude, you're self-serving, self-seeking, you're easily angered, you keep account of wrongs, You seem to rejoice in evil. That's the peak, and that casts a shadow over everything. Paul has admonished them to live into what love is. So he began with what love is by saying love is patient and love is kind. And then he continues by saying that love always protects. Love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres. These positive aspects are what Paul is wanting them to move toward and to seek after these things. He then tells basically a story about himself. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I acted like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. We see through a glass, darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we'll know even as we're also known. He's not, I don't think, pointing to some long into the future, hopeful piece of eternity. He's saying when we begin to practice love, it changes how we see ourselves, changes how we see others. Changes how we think, how we reason, how we talk. Love molds us. He brings it down to a beautiful conclusion when he says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It is the way, and we should zealously seek after it. There is um, an easy way to think about slot canyons. It sometimes presents for us a difficult way to get through. I have been in some slot canyons where the back of my head touched one wall of the slot canyon and my nose literally touched the other side of the slot canyon. Some places that you can't get through, but water can. Water kind of molds itself to space and works its way around structures. And so often we think about water forming itself to whatever the container is. But the truth is that the canyons were actually formed by water, not the other way around. Water poured through and molded and changed and adapted and pushed. Water and time changed the structure. And that's what we believe about love. Love and time changes things. It changes us, but it changes our circumstances. We are called to love. The piece that's at the um, crescendo of this that I talked about, what love is not, a description of the Corinthians. The other piece is what love is, a description of Jesus. Paul had the image of Jesus in mind when he talks about love. And love never falls. It never fails. Over time, it begins to form things anew. It takes painful moments and uses them in ways we never thought possible. It takes suffering and creates character It takes agony and brings about hope. Just like the water moving through a slot canyon, love moves through our lives. And when we treat one another with love, with intent, with purpose, we find transformation taking place. So often the church has been an instrument of things other than love. We have fit fairly well with the Corinthians church. Paul is beckoning us to seek after those things that are love. Everything else will fall in place because love over time, it changes me. It changes you. It changes us. It changes the world. Father, thank you for the challenge to love in ways we never thought possible and in ways we could never do on our own. But you have offered spiritual giftedness. First and foremost, you have blessed us with your love. And so we ask that that love might mold and change us to become what you've called us to be, purveyors of your grace. Check all of those things within us that doesn't reflect love. And help us, Lord, to not only surrender to what you're doing in our life, but become part of that great flow of your Spirit, the living waters of grace, the love that transforms. Help us to live that way, Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, may you go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have a wonderful week.